if if you're listening to listening to us at home via uh, 100.9 FM, we're glad you're here. I want to remind you that the body of Christ is greater than a building. Christianity is not a movement. We are brought together by Christ Himself. We're the bride. And so wherever we gather, in whatever way we gather, we are significant to Him. Today we look at the Sunday of Palms. When everyone was celebrating Jesus entering into the city, everyone was excited. But I want to ask you today this. What happened to that crowd one week later? Just the end of that week, by Friday, it all turned on him. Where do we stand in the crowd on Palm Sunday? I don't mean the fact that you're there at home. But I mean, where do we stand? Are we a part of the fickle majority that somehow always seems to cheer when everyone else is cheering, but can be turned literally at a word? against that which is true and holy? Are you with a convinced minority that know your, you know your faith is strong and you will not be moved? Or the twelve disciples, all who scattered except John? There were the critical Pharisees that stood back and were judgmental about everything. And there have always been Pharisees under different titles and names that have been judgmental and critical of what God's people are doing. And there's always been that opposition. I've heard it said by a wiser man than me that the door which leads to the room of success swings upon the hinges of opposition. And that is so true. Anything we do for God, there will be those who oppose us And in this broken world, there are people that don't believe the truth. And my heart goes out to them because in this time of pestilence, in this time of uh, of this COVID virus, who do you turn to when you're terrified and frightened? Who do you go to that will give you the hope and the help that you need? It is only God that can give you that peace and also that healing. As you are aware that year after year, we read this story. And we talk about the the day of palms when people recognized him as the Messiah. But the crowd is unusual. I entitled this sermon, The Madness of Crowds, for just about a month and a half ago. I finished a book entitled The Madness of Crowds. It was not a Christian book. It was a secular book written by a college professor. And all he did was historically look at and consider the dangers of pure democracy. How the crowd can be turned so easily. Now somehow modern media in America has brought this to a fine art. And they can take a story that is beautiful and wistful and full of truth and they can spin it on a phrase and make it evil. They can turn the crowd that see them as truth rather than God who is the author of truth. They're guided by the wrong person and they turn and they move away. This Palm Sunday 
that we are reading about here in John 12 can teach us something very important about life. We can learn even today in the world that we are in how to be that voice of hope and help to those who are broken. Because more and more people are realizing that we're in a place as a culture and as a nation that we've never been in before. It's fearful. It's frightening. I never thought I would live in a world where I would be fearful to get on the street simply to drive to my church. But this morning, that crossed my mind. I had to write a letter so our building superintendent, as he comes to work, in the event that he's pulled over, he will be able to hand them that letter and prove that he had a purpose to be here and is not included in those who would be turned home or arrested. I thought for a moment, who's going to write that letter for me? We're in a world now where people are frightened. And suddenly the only thing that can protect you, well, this was last week, was toilet paper. Who knows what it will be next week. People in a frightening fashion go after different things thinking that somehow they'll protect them. Forgetting that there's only one true protection. When, when your ideal is, is based on the wrong thing, when you're trusting in something that cannot reach you, and you heed what that thing says to you, you're in trouble when it is not Christ Jesus. You're in a dangerous place. You know, the ideal in the days of Jesus to the religious leaders was based upon appearance. And the audience you were performing to and your friends and neighbors were who they cared about. It was all about appearance. It wasn't about any possession within. It wasn't about any attitude. It was about how they appeared to others. Then you, my friend, if you live that way, are trapped. You're trapped in the, in, in the same perpetuating sin cycle that defeated the Pharisees. And they stood before the Messiah and did not even recognize Him. That is the same preaching that captivated and captured the hearts of many for a few days. But because inside they did not have that structure that would last, they drifted away from Him. No, I don't, I don't trust pure democracy. I don't trust the majority's whims. I'm so thankful that our faith is built upon the rock of Jesus Christ and no one else. It is not built upon the rock of St. Peter, as some churches believe. No, Simon Peter was as fallible and as mixed up and as easily distracted from truth as we are. No, Jesus Christ is the only, only thing we can trust in. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt that day, Things were already destined for a confrontation. The crowds went wild shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches, but the reality is those words only stoked the fires of bitterness within the hearts of the religious leaders that saw that they were losing control of what they considered so important. Somehow they felt and they believed that within their hearts they were given a responsibility of protecting 
God. What a frightening state to be in. Various types of people lined the streets, and they all watched, but it did not last. The 118th Psalm tells us this, and this is literally the prophecy of the triumphal entry. It says, The Lord is God, and He has made His light shine upon us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. The altars in old, the Old Testament times would have horns about them, and, and the horn was what many times people would grab hold of when they were crying out to God. Because they felt that if they could, could grab the horn and touch it on the edge of the altar, that they were with God. But the reality was God was with them in Jesus Christ. And during this time, these people did not even understand. They were bitter, they were angry, and they were anxious because they saw their comfort being disturbed. That's a little bit what our life is about right now. Our comfort is being disturbed. The reality of life as we've come to enjoy has changed. And most likely we'll never go back to where it was once before. Just like on September the 11th, 2001, our innocence was shattered. We could accurately say that we had never been attacked stateside as a nation. Yet everything changed at that point. Somehow now God is pushing us out into that desert land of faith. Into that place where we can't depend upon those round about us or, or those in authority over us in government to protect us. No, they're as afraid as we are. But the reality is we have a God that wants us to be in that place. He wants us to be a people who trust Him in the storms. It was Adam who was created, not in the safety of the garden, but out in the wilderness. God made him. Because God intended for Adam to hear the voice of God and respond readily. But not too far distant beyond that time, he and his wife Eve sinned. And God cried out to him with the only statement he could say, Adam, where are you? It was not that God could not catch sight of him or that he was hiding in such a way that God couldn't see him. No, not at all. God was asking a question that we can ask of ourselves today. He said, Adam, where are you? Because you're not where you were before. You're not with me. You're not listening to me. You're, you're not worshiping me. You're hiding. What has happened? The Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled. Each one of them, one by one, to give a picture of the coming Messiah. These men who read the Old Testament should have known right away, but somehow they had added their own desires into that picture. Not the words of, of the Old Testament prophets, no, but the desires within their heart. And they wanted 
a Messiah that would fit in their comfortable lifestyle, that would keep them on. They talked to Jesus like union negotiators talking to businesses. They negotiated with him, trying to to get him to understand that what he was doing did not fit what they wanted. Jesus wasn't concerned. He didn't come to make peace with a religious group that was off track. He didn't even come to, to change the horrible morass that they were in with the Roman occupation of Palestine. No, he didn't. He came for one thing, to be obedient to the Father and to die to kill the sin nature in creation. Not just in humanity, but in creation. He wanted to restore to the Godhead what was rightfully theirs and had been taken away by sin. And in doing that, he gave us victory. If we would stand beside him and pray to him and confess to him our sins, and accept that great gift of salvation, then we too could be changed. But the Pharisees didn't understand that. They had their own agenda. The mission of the people of that day was fickle in short term, whereas Jesus' plan was for eternity. A long-term salvation for those who would call out to him, a restoration of the world as it was meant to be. What a contrast between selfishness and selflessness do we see. Yet on that day, much was going on and noise was being made and it was easy to be distracted by what was being said. But the truth is, our Lord came to call out to us and His voice is still calling. Though it be over a radio station, He's calling. I think that it's odd, I I know that from the times I've been to the beach, that you do not encounter uh, our radio station, Alex FM 100.9, you don't encounter it coming from the south until you get to Georgiana. It goes far north from us, and it goes to the east and the west. It's a great station to broadcast on. But listening to this station will not make you a Christian. Reading your Bible won't make you a Christian. There's only one way you can come to Christ, and that is, number one, by surrendering. And surrendering means simply saying, I don't know what to do. God, tell me what to do. And when you accept the blood of His Son for your sin, you're saved. That Christ that was coming... In such an amazing way to fulfill all those. And remember the fulfillment of prophecy was not like Jesus was playing a, a, a game. He wasn't trying to check off all the right spots. No, he was trying to give an image to the broken world of who he was. I don't think he could have said it any more boldly if he wore a sign that said, I am the Messiah. Come to me. But like so many people who are distracted, they were. There are young people who are afraid to make that sacrifice. Teenagers feel that if they choose God's agenda over their own, 
they'll miss out on what they really want to do because their friends are leading them in another way. But God blesses the one who dances to the beat of a different drummer. The one that follows a voice that's still and small and not heard by the crowd. We drag our feet sometimes and say, maybe someday I will really commit my life fully to do what God wants me to do. But as the years roll around, you forget that and you become comfortable and suddenly you realize that you never got around to doing it. Today is the day of salvation. I don't care if you're sitting in a church or in your lazy boy recliner in your den. The truth is, today is the day of salvation if you've not accepted Jesus as Savior. Now I want to think about several themes as we look at this because I believe this passage is about soul searching. That's exactly what it's about. And the first question I would ask is this. Will you listen to him alone and no one else and become wise? It's important for us to listen and be careful. The best laid plans of mankind are foolishness in the eyes of the Lord, we are told in Scripture. Wisdom often comes from our mistakes. Remember that. Some years ago, a NASA scientist was assigned to prepare a presentation on the lessons learned from the bad experiences that they had gone through in the developing of the Hubble Space Telescope. This man had been there from the beginnings of that. And on his chart at the briefing, he turned the page, and lesson number one was this. He said, in naming your mission, never use a word that rhymes with trouble. He said that was their first mistake. We can't plan our lives well enough to be safe enough to be okay. There are people that are so particular with their lives that they try to imagine what someone is seeing when they come before them. In my house that I bought almost 10 years ago, there is at one end of a hall a mirror that goes from the floor to the ceiling and it covers everything. It looks like my hallway is twice as long as it really is. No doubt that was put there either to startle burglars or to help those who lived in the house make sure that their appearance was proper and correct when they stepped out of the house to see other people. Unfortunately, my cat never figured that out, and she thought another cat was attacking her when she ran down the hall. Very quickly, she found out that was a very thick mirror when she hit it. The reality is this, you cannot prepare yourself well enough in any way to go out there and fulfill God's destiny for you. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. He will guide you in all truth. He will allow you to be vulnerable and to be in doubt because he doesn't show his hand right away. Sometimes he wants you to be in that merciful, frightening position of fear. Because in fear, we trust. And that's exactly what he desires of all of us. Matthew 7, 24 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. 
You choose where you build. The second question I want to ask is this. Is God your consultant or is he your guide? Now, there's a huge difference. My dad, after he retired from being an electrician, became a consultant uh, to a business that was renovating some of the buildings that my dad had wired 40 years before. Well, my dad loved this because he said, I should have become a consultant from the beginning. I'm making twice what I made as an electrician. But what they asked him for was this. If they were looking over any of the schematics or the plans, or if they went into a wall or into a floor and they could not figure out what the wiring was that was hidden behind the walls, they'd consult him and ask him. Only when they got to the point of an uncontrollable issue did they ask him. That's the way some people treat Christ. That's the way many people speak to the Holy Spirit. They, they tell the Holy Spirit, bless me and, and watch over me, forgive me of my sins, and, 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 and you know, do what you can as I go along and buy. Go back, go back in my, into my little book that I opened to read, my prayer book, or go back into my Bible, and I'll see you tomorrow morning at 7.15. That's treating God as a consultant. Some people treat God like a fire alarm. They only reach out to him in times of disaster. And they cry out to him, not realizing that if they'd listened to him earlier, they would not be in so many disasters. No, God wants to be our guide, not our consultant. He wants to be with us through the storms and the joys of life, through the valleys that are dark and sad and the hilltops that are covered with shining Sunlight. He wants to be with us every step of the way because as He goes with us, He will shine through as we subdue the flesh and surrender to Him. Peter Forsyth was right when he said, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. And we must find who our master will be. John 14 says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Do you hear that? He won't be a guest in your life. He will be a person who dwells with you always. And people will know the difference in your life. We all want friendship and fellowship with others. And he said we should choose to follow his agenda. And we will result in a life that will be happy and joyous. And our life will change those who we are around. My third question to you is simply this. Are you an active member of the family of God? Family reunions often get together from this time forward to about August or so. And family reunions are special because you're reunited with, with friends and family that you haven't seen in a long time. Some come especially for that. Some people come because it's the last time they'll be together and they realize that. And family gatherings matter. Matthew 12, 50 
said very plain to us the importance of that when it said, For whosoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother's and sister and mother. We've been accepted into the family of God, but are we willing to participate in that family? Are we willing to reach out and love those round about us? Or do we have our own private family somewhere else? You will never teach your children nor your grandchildren how to be the Christian that they should be until you demonstrate to them that there's a greater circle of concern than the immediate family. I have known many people who are wonderful parents but are horrible friends. They love their children and their grandchildren and maybe even those who marry into the family a little bit. But as far as building relationships, durable, lasting relationships with friends, they can't do that. It's because they don't understand their family circle. And they focus on what they can control or work with. If you're doing that, my friend, stop it. Because you're teaching a model to your children that will destroy them. Because they need more than just the family. They need the family of God. Rudyard Kipling once wrote about families. He said, all of us are we and everyone else is they. And that's the way many people treat it. It's we and they. But the reality is, in the house of God, and in the family of God, it's greater than that. A family shares things like dreams and hopes and possessions and memories, smiles, frowns, and gladness. A family is a group held together with the glue of love and the cement of mutual respect. A family is a shelter from the storm, a friendly port when the waves of life become too wild. No person is ever alone who is a member of a family. But the family I'm speaking of is the family of God. And that's what you must depend upon. Lastly, and, and the fourth question I ask you is, is your life about what you get? Or is it about what you give? You see, there were Christians that were gathered there casting their palms in the way of the donkey carrying the Messiah because they were there for what they could get. They liked the celebration. They enjoyed that. When everything was going the way that they felt it should, they were happy. But very shortly, it will change. It will not fit, it will not fit their, their smoothly defined description of what a Messiah should be. And they'll walk away. In Luke 9.24, Jesus said, Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now I want to ask you something. Do you, do you really realize that today a cross is a piece of jewelry or a sign that you're near a religious group or a religious person? But back then a cross was not. It was an ugly sight. I've always said that if you truly want to understand what was being said there, you should think of the picture of an electric chair or hangman's gallus. Or if your state uses uh, an injection, that, that table that they're laid on and stretched out and tied down to and injected with poison. Think of that. 
That is what Jesus was calling us to do. Not something pretty and beautiful and covered with gold, but something that was despised and reviled. You see, to follow Him means so much more than that. I think in these days of, 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 of the disease all over the world, it's time for God's people to bow their heads and pray seriously. Get away from your simple prayer that seems to end so eloquently and, and, and short of truth. And confess your own sins to Him. Be honest with God about who you are. Remember, prayer is not about shaking God's attention. It's about changing you. And if your prayer is going to change you, you must do a self-examination beyond anything you've ever imagined because you need to look into the rudimentary elements of who and what you are, the sin that you have, the things that you spread and, and the way you think, the negativity that comes into your life that you feel is justified because you're saying it. No, self-denial means that you look at your life and you examine your heart and you change for the better. Then you begin to pray. And your prayer is not about you, but it's about God. Then you get the attention of a holy, loving God that loves you so much that He's willing to halt all that's reasonable because you have asked. That's when we will see a change. That's when we will see the genuineness of a Christian walking with God. You see, what I'm saying is we don't need to wait for some doctor to produce a cure. We don't need to wait for some laboratory to come up with, with some shot they can get you so you can survive this disease. No, what we need is a people that will love God and trust Him and not look to the left nor to the right. That will not listen to CNN or, or CNBC. But you'll simply listen to God. Many people are like Simon Peter. The joy of walking on water just blessed him because, number one, it, it connected him with Jesus. And he had such a thrilling feeling within his heart. But then he looked away. The waves were great and the storm was menacing. And he got his eyes off of Jesus and he sank. Now here's what I, I'm thankful that, that Jesus is able to get to us when we sink. But the lesson is this. Don't get your eyes off of Jesus. We're in the same kind of storm, dear people. Who you look to and what you share and say will determine who you're trusting. Trust Him alone, and you will find this the greatest Palm Sunday of your life. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You for the blessings that You give to us, that we can trust Your Word, for it's true and it's real. It does not have to be tested of men. 
It's what you say it is. Therefore, Lord, I pray right now that that you would speak to anyone who's living a life of doubt and frustration and anxiety right now. Someone who's struggling and, and they feel that that next bit of news they get over the Internet or over their cable television will, will help them and save them. Lord, help them to understand that salvation will not be found that way. It's found only through you. Trust is built in looking to the only trustworthy individual in eternity. And that's our Savior. Lord, guide those who are seeking the way. Help them to trust the truth. And may they abide with you. When they pick up that remote or reach out to turn on that computer, Lord, have them turn away and open your word, your Bible, your book, Lord. Open it and allow the God of all creation and salvation to speak then they will be at peace with all that is there. Bless us during this holy week. Prepare our hearts, and may we be vessels of hope to those who we encounter. For it's in your holy name I do pray, Lord. Amen.